A lot of you uh, don't know much about my past. Some of you may have read the uh, documents that are posted on the website, but I doubt it. Uh, I know you're busy doing other things. Uh, So I want to start with a story. On January 9th, 1984, I woke up that morning, and it was snowing outside. The day actually, much like today, it looks more like January than it does April to me up here. And um, it was a Monday, and it was a day... Uh, like any other day in some respects, uh, but it was also a day that was going to be very different for me. What I didn't realize was it was the day that I was going to say goodbye to my wife. Um, If you read my documents, you saw that I was married once before, and my wife was in the hospital with cystic fibrosis, and she had been very sick. And uh, she'd been very sick for quite some time, actually. She was on her 29th hospital visit, On that particular day. That's the Holy Spirit weighing in. And um, I knew that she was sick. I didn't realize that that would be the last day that I would see her. I really didn't know what to expect, even though I had been prepared, had been through counseling, and had talked to the doctors, and had uh, lived through a bunch of stuff in the hospital. And... um, The doctor said there was no going back, but I still wasn't prepared for that. It was about um, 3.06 in the afternoon, give or take a few minutes. And um, her heart rate was very, very high, running around 180, 190. And I noticed that her heart rate began to slow down. And um, she was in respiratory isolation and in intensive care, so I was the only one with her. And I was sitting there holding her hands, and I watched her heart rate begin to go down. And I said to the nurse, and I said, look, her heart rate's coming down into the normal range. That's a good thing. And the nurse came around and put her arm around me, and she said, no, no, no. No. This is the time to say goodbye. That's what that means. And it went on down and went on down and went on down and went all the way to zero. And um, that was a day I won't ever forget. It's a day that challenged my theology. It's a day that made me ask all kinds of questions inside. One day, Lord willing, I'll share some of those questions with you. What happened on that day? I was holding your hands, and there's just nothing like, no experience in the whole world like holding the hands of a spouse when you say goodbye to them. And, uh, but a very deep question surfaced at that particular second. And I still marvel even today, that in the midst of all that confusion and pain and turmoil, and I had a one- and three-year-old at home and wasn't sure what I was going to do with them, and uh, what surfaced was, do I really love the Lord? Because he had just taken away uh, the most important person to me. And that's, that's, if there's ever ever a time when you're going to question your faith, that's it. And I did. And it re- the question came right to the surface. Do I really love the Lord? And I won't ever forget closing my eyes and tears started to flow. And um, she and I had talked about her dying. I said, I don't know what it's like to die. <laughs> she asked me, you know, what's going to be like? I have no idea. You know, all I know is the doctors will uh, take care of the pain. That's the one thing I do know. And I suspect it will be something like this. You'll be laying there um, asleep, and I'll be sitting with you. 
And all of a sudden, the Lord will walk up and he'll say, Hey, Judy, it's time to go. And uh, you'll go, okay, and you'll sit up on the side of the bed and you'll walk away with him. I, I think that's probably what it's like. And um, at no point will you be alone. And I'll see you walk away. And so I saw her walk away. It was snowing outside. I never forget looking out the window of the hospital, the sixth floor, and seeing the snow. It was snowing outside. I watched her walk away. And then I started to chuckle. Because the deepest question for me of my faith was, do I really love the Lord? He just took away the most important person in my life. And the answer was, yes, I do. Very profound moment in my life as a believer. All right. So that raises all kinds of questions which philosophers love to deal with, pastors love to deal with, people that are in pain have to deal with. And that is, is, good, is God good in all that he does? And to answer that question, I want to go back to a very ancient text and look at another person's experience and what happened. It's the story of Job. It's not a story we often preach from up front, um, but when I'm done preaching from it today, I think that you will very much um, perhaps have a different perspective of who Job is and the questions that he asked. Job is often thought of as a person that has been through a lot, and he has been through. I haven't lost all my children, and my um, the one person he didn't lose was his wife. And uh, given the story, maybe that's one person he should have lost. He, at one point, calls her a godless woman. He said, you're acting like a godless woman. <laughs> the counsel that you're giving me, you're telling me to curse God and die. And uh, she's, um, But she stays through the whole story. But the children don't. In fact, all of his livestock, they disappear. Everything he owns disappears in a matter of seconds. I think many of you know the story. He uh, is sitting there, doesn't have a clue what's happening around him as far as the Lord and Satan. And uh, the servant runs up and says, uh, the, the building collapsed and killed all your children. Another one comes up and says, we had this calamity and all your livestock have died. Another one comes up and said, all your crops have been burned and everything you own is gone and there's nothing left except your wife. And... Uh, Wow, I've not been through that. I had some time to prepare for at least losing one person. I don't know what it would have been like to lose a whole bunch all at the same time. Job is a story. It's a very ancient story. We know very little about the, the uh, beginnings of it. We don't know who wrote it, for instance. We don't know when it was wrote, written, so we can't really say. But when we look inside the book, we find out that uh, it's a very ancient story. Because uh, Abraham, uh, Ab Job, one of the reasons is because Job, his wealth is measured in his livestock. And that stopped a long time ago. That's not how they measured livestock. So he probably goes back to the patriarchs, Abraham. So this may be one of the very earliest stories in the Bible. And it's dealing with a question that some of you have had to deal with. Some of you will deal with in the future, and some of you are dealing with right now. But it's also dealing with a question on the other side of that coin that some of you wrestle with, and that is, what do you say to someone who's going through this? What do you say to a person who's lost everything? A person that's lost their job, a person that's lost their spouse, a person that's lost a child, a person that's lost something very dear to them. What kind of counsel do you give them? And Job has a lot to say about that as well. We're going to take a look at Job, and what we're going to do is we're going to walk through Job's response. So I have several passages that I'm going to read to you out of the story of Job. 
And if you have your iPods or your telephones with Bibles on them, if not, I think there's one in the pew. I will not be using the same translation that's in the pew because I have one I think better represents this text. But I want to follow Job's response in the middle of this pain. And I think you'll be surprised at what Job does because it reflected my own journey, and I suspect it'll reflect your journey. Well, you know the basic story of Job, so I'm just going to read a few verses at the beginning of Job. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. The man was blameless and upright. He feared God and he shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the peoples of the East. That's an important statement. He was the greatest man among this whole region. He was well known. Jump down to verse 6. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on the earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. That is something you never want the Lord to say about you. All right? Not in Satan's presence. Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him. It's a little divine boasting. I mean, the Lord has the right to boast. He's the one that makes us what we are, right? He builds into us. And so the Lord decides to boast about Job. And you know the story. Satan says, well, of course he's, he uh, is faithful. You won't let me touch him. Everything he has is in your protection, which, by the way, gives us insight. And what's going on in the world around us, doesn't it? Every day, in the morning and in the evening, I thank the Lord that I'm alive. Because there's absolutely no doubt in my mind, if Satan had his way, I would be dead. Instantly. Maybe with some suffering. This gives us insight. Satan says, of course he's faithful. I can't touch him. You protect him. So God says, okay, he's yours. Have at him. Just don't touch his person. So the first round, Satan wipes out everything. Children are all uh, killed. Livestock's all destroyed. Everything he owns is gone. Then he comes back to God, Satan does. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him on the earth. He's still faithful. And Satan says, well, of course he is. You will let me touch his person. And God says, he's yours. Do whatever you want, just don't take his life. Next thing you know, he's covered with all these sores. I'm not a doctor, I don't know what all that means. All I know is it says he was in intense pain for a year. A long period of time. He's hurting. He's lost everything. He's hurting on the inside. Not sure how to make sense of all this. And he's hurting on the outside. And then he has a great response in verse 20. At this, Job got up and tore his robes and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. So in all of this, he did not sin. He bowed before the Lord, and he kept the Lord in, foc in his focus right in front of him. Now, many of you have been through some of this, and you know what it's like to keep the Lord in focus. But what happens over a long period of time? 
This is where the story of Job gets very interesting when you begin to look at this year-long process. So the very first thing that happens is three good friends come along. It's also the worst thing that happens. These three friends come along, and they, uh, they begin to give him counsel. We're only going to take just a picture of what they said. We're not going to look at their counsel because I really want you to focus on what Job, how he reacted to everything. But we are going to take a look at it. Eliphaz is the first one. And in chapter 4, in verse 4, here's what Eliphaz says to him. Your words have supported those who stumbled. You have strengthened faltering knees. But now trouble comes to you and you are discouraged. It strikes you and you are dismayed. So the very first thing he says is, you used to be the one to give counsel to these people, and you can't even handle it yourself. Nice, encouraging. So he makes a, a suggestion to Job in chapter 5. In verse 8, he says, If I were you, I would appeal to God. I would lay my cause before him. Now, we're not going to read everything in between there, but he's working to convince Job that Job may have a case. In fact, both Eliphaz and a little bit later on, another one of the friends, they both argue, Job, you have a case. If I were you, I'd present my case to the Lord. Because Job hasn't done that up until now. All he's doing is saying, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I will worship him. And his friend is saying, but something's not right here. So the first thing he says is, you have a case before God. The implication is that there is an injustice that has occurred. That's the implication. The only reason we would have a case before God is because there's an injustice. Something is not right. You ever felt that way? You ever asked the question, why me? This isn't fair. This isn't right. And that's where, that's where uh, Eliphaz is. So here's what Job says in chapter 6. Oh, that I might have my request that God would grant what I hope for. How different this is than the very first thing he says. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Oh, that I might have my request that God would have would grant me what I hope for. That God would be willing to crush me to let loose his hand and cut off my life. You ever been to the point so low that you wish the Lord would just end it? I've been there. So that's Job's first response. This isn't right. This isn't fair. God, just take, just take me away. Moses said that. Why would you ever pick me to lead these obstinate people? Just take me away. Take my life and it'll be done with it. It'll be over with it. Then I would have this consolation. My joy and unrelenting pain. I wish that God would listen. That's what he's saying. God, just take my life. Take it away. The suffering is getting the best of him. By the time you move over to chapter 7, he says in verse 16, I despise my life. I would not live forever. Let me alone. My days have no meaning. Now he's talking to his friends. So the first step is he begins, the pain begins to wear him down. He begins to say, I've had enough. I can't take this. Unfortunately, this is early in the process. He has a long ways to go. He just doesn't know it yet. We know it because we have a glimpse into what's happening from God's perspective. But he doesn't know it. All right. Then Bildad and Zophar, his other friends, come along and they present the same thing. They suggest that he has a case. God is no longer a God with whom we bow and worship, but a God with whom we can present our case. That's what Bildad says in chapter 8. Verse 5, if you will seek God earnestly and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, even now he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your prosperous state. 
Your beginnings will be humble, so prosperous will your future be. How many times do we encourage people, well, just go and trust the Lord. I never will forget when Judy died. I was sitting in my office. It was about a week and a half after she died, and the wave of loneliness came over me, and the tears just flowed just for a few minutes. Pretty soon, I, I was able to kind of bring a little bit of control back to the feelings and wipe the tears. And my boss comes in, who's a Christian, gives me the most profound statement I've ever heard. You know, you just need to rely on, learn to rely on the inner strength of Jesus. So I just looked at him and said, do you ever wonder what it would be like if I wasn't doing that? I was furious. This is on a Friday afternoon. We're getting ready to go home. So I walked out of the room and I walked, walked down the hallway. As I, I was furious, I was just going just to go work off the anger. Um, and so I go walking by the break room, and as I did, about 15 or 20 of my fellow employees came out. They're not believers. And it's Friday afternoon, and they're talking about going drinking on Friday night. And so they said to me, you know, we know that, um, we know that you don't drink like we do and do all those things, but uh, actually I had walked through the group. And uh, you could tell that they were all very uncomfortable with me. They didn't know what to say. So when I got to the other side, they said, Jim, wait just a minute. We don't really know what to say to you because we haven't been through what you've been through. But uh, we're going out tonight, and you're welcome to come with us and just drink a Coke and sit with us if you'd like. Where do you think I went? Nancy was in that group that Friday night. I had more empathy and more sympathy and more understanding and more compassion from the unbelievers than I did the believers. Now, these are his friends, giving him counsel. Present your case to God. You have a case. Well, what does Job say in chapter 9? Indeed, I know this is true, but how can mere mortals prove their innocence before God? Though they wish to dispute with him, they would not answer him for one time in a thousand. His wisdom is profound. Then he moves on a little bit later in verse 20. Even if I were innocent, my mouth would condemn me. If I were blameless, it would pronounce me guilty. Although I am blameless, I have no concern for myself. I despise my own life. In the midst of pain, that's what often happens. We become very self-focused. And you're going to notice a gradual shift away from who God is to what's happening with me. That's where he's going with it. In chapter 10, verse 1, I loathe my very life. Therefore, I will give free reign to my complaint. I'm going to vent. I'm going to speak out of the bitterness of my soul. I'm going to say to God, do not declare me guilty. Tell me what what charges you have against me. Does it please you to oppress me? To spurn the work of your hands? You were the one that blessed me. Is this what pleases you, is to do this to me? Can you see this? journey that he's on, this journey away from the Lord is good. Well, Zophar comes along, basically says, if you get your life together, this suffering will pass. I've heard those words before. In fact, uh, I'm guilty of giving them a long time ago. I don't give them anymore. If you get your life together, it'll pass. Chapter 11, verse 13. If you div- If you devote your heart to him and stretch out your hands to him, if you put away the sin that is in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent, notice the assumption here is that he's in sin, and that's a cause. All right? Then, free of fault, you will lift up your face. You will stand firm without fear. You will surely forget your trouble, recalling it only as waters go by. So if you just repent, obviously there's something wrong with you. 
You're the one in sin or God wouldn't have done this. His friends are wrestling with all the categories that we try to make sense of pain, aren't they? Maybe God just didn't understand. Maybe God made a mistake. Maybe you're in sin. And what's Job's response? He's just digging further and further down into this hole, trying to get away. So Job says in chapter 12, verse 4, I have become a laughingstock to my friends. Now remember, he's the greatest man in the region, in the east. I've become a laughingstock. Though I called on God and he answered, a mere laughingstock. Now think about that. His witness. I have become a laughingstock to my friends, though I called on God and he answered. A mere laughingstock. It's embarrassing. You ever been there? It's out of your control, hopeless, and there's not a thing you can do about it. It's hard to be there. Hard to be there. Well, then in chapter 13, Job is beginning to allow his pain to shift his perspective. Verse 3, I desire to speak to the Almighty and to argue my case with God. It's very different than the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I desire to speak to the Almighty to present my case. In verse 15, he says, um, I will surely defend my ways to his face. Indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance. God is wrong. If I could just present my case to God, God is wrong. This will turn out for my deliverance. Verse 18, now that I have prepared my case, I know that I will be vindicated. He is now convinced that God is wrong and he's in the right. Well, the next step is that uh, now that he's convinced of God's fault, he begins to blame God in chapter 16. Chapter 16, verse 7. Surely, God, you have worn me out. You have worn me out. You have devastated my entire household. You have shriveled me up, and it has become a witness. My gauntness rises up and testifies against me. God assails me and tears me in his anger and gnashes his teeth at me. My opponent fastens on me his piercing eyes. People open their mouth and they jeer at me. He's convinced now. Now that he's convinced himself that he has a case and God is wrong, now he's beginning to blame God. He then goes on further and says that God's not playing fair. So he begins to claim his rights in chapter 19. Verse 5, If indeed you would exalt yourself above me and use my humiliation against me, then I know that God has wronged me. And he's drawn his net around me. Though I cry violence, I get no response. So he's accusing God of violence. I'm crying out to God, violence. This is violence. This is wrong. And God doesn't respond. You ever been there? Where God doesn't seem to respond? Though I call for help, there is no justice. He has blocked my way so I cannot pass. He has shrouded my paths in darkness. He has stripped me of my honor He has removed the crown from my head. He tears me down on every side until I am gone. He uproots my hope like a tree. His anger burns against me. It's a very different Job that started out the book, right? 
This is a picture of what happens under sustained effect of pain. We're not created for that. We're not created to suffer this much. And this is what it looks like. I've been there. I've been on that journey. Judy was sick for five years. She was on her 29th hospital visit when she went to be with the Lord. I went through some of this. I went days and days and days fasting and praying over and over and over again. Nothing happened. Not a word from the Lord. No answer. She's got sicker and sicker. Sicker and sicker. Well, here's where Job ends up in chapter 23. He demands the ultimate. God will listen and God is the one that will repent. Even today, verse 2, my complaint is bitter. His hand is heavy in spite of my groaning. If only I knew where to find him, if only I could go to his dwelling, I would state my case before him and I would fill my mouth with arguments. I would find out what he would answer me and consider what he would say to me. See how the authority has shifted now? Would he vigorously oppose me? No, he would not press charges against me. There the upright can establish their innocence before him, and there I would be delivered forever from my judge. He's a judge. He's judged me, and he's wrong. That's a very bold place to be. That's where Job ends up, shaking his fist at God. Years gone by, a lot of pain. It is God who must change, and Job can no longer see his preoccupation with pain. The, the, The transfer is complete. He's now done the ultimate. He's demanded that God give him a hearing because God is wrong. That's where pain takes us. Okay, an observation about that. Job's decay was gradual. As the pain wore on, his perspective deteriorated. It shifted from God to self. He started out in a very faithful, a very righteous place, didn't he? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And at the end of the year, he's now shaking his fist at God. Okay, let's look at what God does. It's going to surprise you what God does. Let me tell you, first of all, what he does not do. Number one is he doesn't blame Satan. Even though Satan is the one that carried out all the the evil. He could have said, Satan did that. And that's a pattern we find from beginning to end, and from beginning to end in the scriptures. God never shirks his responsibility. He always takes responsibility. Never, he doesn't blame Satan. He doesn't chastise Job. He doesn't condemn him. Never says any condemnatory word. Never shames him. He doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't criticize him. He doesn't abandon him. Neither does he comfort him. interesting when you look at his response. So what does he do? He exposes Job. This introduces a principle in theological reflection, growing into Christ-likeness, which we should all be very aware. Our tendency is to blame our circumstances for who we are. Who am I? Well, I'm discouraged because um, the loan of my house didn't go through. I'm depressed because the stock market is down. I'm angry because so-and-so... Uh, hurt me. We blame our circumstances. We blame who we are on our circumstances. 
I'm the way I am because of our circumstances. But the reality is, our circumstances reveal our character more than make it. I understand that a sustained set of circumstances, perhaps in an abusive home, creates a response. But for most of us in the short term, the circumstances in our life reveal who we are. Why do I get angry with Nancy sometimes? It's not because of her. She just happens to be a catalyst. It's because I'm a sinful person. I suspect very much if Jesus was here, that wouldn't be his response. And that's what it means to grow in Christ-likeness. See how the circumstances expose who we are? So if God really wants to deal with our character, what's the best thing that he can do? Manipulate circumstances and expose who we are. And that's what he did. That's what he did with Job. All right, chapter 38. We have, Job, we have uh, God's response. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. And he said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Prepare to defend yourself. I will question you and you will answer me. All right, Job, you got your hearing. <laughs> That's the second thing we don't ever want, is a hearing with God. Okay? Where were you when I laid the foundations? Tell me, you understand. A little bit of divine sarcasm there. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched the measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or lay who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. So he goes through all these questions which reestablishes the proper order. I am God and you are not. Okay? So what does Job do? In chapter 40, after two chapters of this, Job answered the Lord, verse 3, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. So his answer is humility. He humbles himself before the Lord. It gets restored. All of a sudden, he's focused back on the Lord, not on himself. But the Lord is not done. Look in chapter 40, verse 6. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Prepare to defend yourself, I added a second time. I will question you, and you will answer me. Test number two. And then God brings up the very core of the book, the heart of the question. Is God really good in all that he does? Look in verse 8. Would you discredit my justice? Would you really do that? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Would you really do that? That's the heart of the book. Do we really believe that God is good in all that he does? Job's final response is humility, brokenness. His perspective is shifted back to God, away from sorrow. God's final response, interestingly enough, in chapter 42, is to direct his anger against God's friends. He said, you better go offer an offering before I take your life. It's fascinating. Nowhere does he direct his anger at Job. He directs it against the friends. In fact, he accepts Job. And he doubles Job's blessing. Gives him the same number of children back. And all the wealth that he had is all restored. His honor is restored in front of all of the people in the country. He accepts Job. This is a fascinating test case of what goes on. Now, here's the amazing thing about it. 
when we look at Job's response from our perspective, it seems sinful, doesn't it? Doesn't it seem wrong? I mean, how many times have we given counsel to people that the pain is so great they can't handle it and they curse God? Well, that's not appropriate. You know, you should learn to rely on the inner strength of Jesus Christ. I've memorialized those words in my mind, never to use them except in sarcasm. <laughs> right? So this story provides a glimpse on both sides of this issue for those who are going through it and for those who are fortunate enough not to be going through it, but to have find themselves in a very honored position of walking with someone. You know who the greatest people were in the times of darkness after Judy died? I was just with one, one a week ago in L.A. Been friends for 34 years. He didn't have a clue what today, so he came over and just sat with me. And when I cried, he cried. When I was up, he was up. He was just stable. He just sat with me. He wasn't married at that time. Now he is. We went to his daughter's wedding. And he asked me, what would you like to do that you've never done? I said, go skiing. He said, all right, let's go. So we went skiing. He took me skiing. First time. He just sat there. There weren't any words. There just weren't any. So for those of you who are suffering or have been through it, it reveals that suffering is not always the result of sin. That's a good thing to remember. Well, divine boasting in heaven is not a good thing for us on the earth. (laughs) But it could very well be the reason. Have you considered my servant Jim? He's working on faithfulness. That's what happens when you take his wife away. It it, It reveals to us that it's okay to question God. I mean, Job got to the point where he was shaking his fist at God. Right? And God didn't turn away from that. God controls the circumstances. He reveals our character, not determines it. We talked about that. How will you know if your faith is genuine if it's never tested? It's only academic. And in that one second, when I held Judy's hands... I realized my faith was real. I never looked back. Other than to miss her, I never looked back regarding my faith. I missed her terribly. Terribly. It's hard to describe. Some of you have been through it, the depth of pain. Night after night, a tidal wave of loneliness and pain that just rolled over me. But my faith never faltered. How would you know if your faith is real if it's never tested? For those who give advice, my words are be very careful. You may find yourself where his friends were. God says, you better go offer a sacrifice or I'm going to take your life. That's how angry I am at you. Because you know what? I'm frail. I'm a human. I'm broken like you are. And the worst thing we can do is to give advice that does not help us. Just be careful. I've sat with many people in hospitals and just sat with them. And they want to know the answers. I don't have the answers. <laughs> How do you tell someone that just lost a child that it's going to be okay? They have to figure it out. The best thing I can do is walk the journey with them. Where do you find yourself in this story? Lord willing, on the side where you get to comfort someone rather than go through the pain. All right. In the New Testament, in James, Job is held up as a model of one who endures. And that's what we should be like. 
2 Corinthians 1, God says we should praise God because we are able to comfort people with the comfort with which he has shown us. Philippians 1.29 says, To you it has been granted in English, but it's the Greek verb for grace. We don't have a verb for grace in our language. To you it has been graced. It's an evidence of God's grace when you suffer for his name. The New Testament sheds light on when we go through this, not only is it for my own faithfulness, but it's for yours. I've heard some of your stories. Bob and I have spent many times, many hours together. I've heard his story. I'm so encouraged when I hear about his faithfulness. And I suspect, I haven't asked, but I suspect it's ter- reverse is true as well. And so when we go through things, it's not only about me. The Lord has a far bigger plan. I fit into something far bigger. I fit into a community. Where do you find yourself in this story? Let's pray together. Father, it's amazing to me that a text so very, very old, coming up probably on 3,500 years now or older, can still give us insight into who you are and the way you love us and give us insight into what we were created for, the purpose for which we were created. Father, I... um, I realize through my own life and through the study of the scriptures that none of us here are made to go through that level of pain. And yet, um, yet somehow you, you take us through it in a way that honors you, in a way that restores our faith and credibility, in a way that encourages the people around us. Father, there's no doubt in my mind, in every church in this country, including this one, there are people that are going through deep pain. Uh, Father, help us to be a congregation that loves them well and gives them the space to fall and to flounder and to question, to shake their fist at you, knowing that uh, you can handle it because you're such a great God. Lord, we uh, give you thanks for all this. In your son's name, amen.